All right, so this uh, lesson three of uh, Survival of a Nation is going to be a little bit of a different style than the previous two classes, a little bit less intense. Um, and we're going to be focusing tonight on the city of Jerusalem. Um, as you all know, the Six-Day War, one of, one of the major elements of the war is the fact that, uh, that the Israelis recaptured or captured for the first time the old city of Jerusalem, which includes the Western Wall, the Temple Mount, and all of that, uh, which had tremendous significance for for the Israelis and for Jews around the world. So there's the you know the actual victory of the war that uh, that was a tremendous thing, um, especially in light of the fact uh, the, the type of threat that the Jews in Israel were facing at the time, as we discussed at length on um, uh, in the fir- in the first uh, in the first lesson. Uh, the rhetoric that Nasser, um, his rhetoric about throwing the Jews into the sea and you know getting rid of them and talk of a new Holocaust, etc. So there was the tremendous salvation for the Jewish people at the fact that the war was won, and especially in just six days, and the fact they took over so much uh, so much land. However, the most memorable part and the most emotional part and most exciting part of the victory was the fact that the Jewish people um, captured or uh, conquered or took rightfully however you want to call it um, the old city of jerusalem including the temple mount and the western wall so today we're going to talk about why is judaism so central to judaism i'm sorry why is jerusalem so central to judaism why did israel feel like there was like this hole in its heart as long as jerusalem uh, was not under their control so let's talk a little bit about the, the history of jerusalem and its relevance to us, even though we had been banished from Jerusalem and Jerusalem had not really served as a capital city of a Jewish state for over 2,000 years. So let's go to um, text number one. This is a quote from Isaiah. Isaiah is a very interesting prophet. He talks a lot about um, the destruction of the temple, but always in a very positive tone. Not always, but most of it is in a positive tone that the destruction will be followed by uh, rebuilding. It will be followed by redemption. Isaiah is called the prophet of redemption. Uh, Isaiah, the word uh, Yeshayahu, comes with Yeshua, which means redemption and salvation. Um, so here in text 1, which comes from chapter 62, Isaiah describes how the Jewish people are going to, um, are going to uh, constantly think about Jerusalem even when they are in exile. Text 1, O Jerusalem, I have appointed the exiled Jewish nation as watchmen over your walls. All day and all night, they shall never cease praying for your welfare. Be not silent, you who remind God of Jerusalem's devastation. Give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem the praise of the earth. And in fact, we incessantly speak about the city of Jerusalem. Not just by the Pesach Seder at the end when we say, and not just on Yom Kippur when we say, however, um, in our prayers, three times a day in the Amidah prayer, one of the blessings starts, We want to return, and you should return, to Yerushalayim, to Jerusalem, your city, your holy city. Um, we're constantly thinking about Jerusalem, and even though, as I mentioned, we didn't have really a, a Jewish government or anything like that up until the, uh, you know up, up until several years ago, um, for, for close to 2,000 years, However, Jerusalem has always been at the center of our imagination, of our hopes, and our dreams. Now, uh, Jerusalem went through a lot of uh, hands, 
right? So the Jews controlled Jerusalem for many years. Then after the destruction of the Second Temple, um, uh, Jerusalem was ruled by the Romans, obviously. They were the ones that destroyed, they breached the walls of Jerusalem. They destroyed the Holy Temple. So it was controlled by the Romans, then the Persians, um, the Christians, then there were different Muslim kingdoms, and finally the Ottoman Empire controlled it from 1517 to 1917, exactly 400 years. That's how long the Turks were there. 1917, it came under the control of the British, the British Mandate. And then in 1948, things started to get a little bit, uh, uh, how do you say, dicey. Uh, things were complicated, right? The state was established, there was a war of independence. The war was fought on many fronts. The Jerusalem front, the war in the old city of Jerusalem was lost. So on all the other fronts, there was pretty much a, a success, but the war for the old city of Jerusalem was lost, and um, the area of the old city, which included the Temple Mount, uh, which included the, um, the the old quarter of the old Jewish quarter, was not really by the the Kota, was not by the Western Wall. The Western Wall, there was no plaza. I'm sure you know that there, there was no plaza at the Western Wall. There was a lot of Arab homes in that area. The, the Western Wall Plaza was a tiny little alleyway, basically where Jews would come before 1948 and they would pray there. Uh, but in 1948, the Jordanians banished the Jews from that entire area, and the Jordanians controlled it. And Jerusalem as a city was a divided city. Um, now let's see what happened in 1967 during the war. Uh, so we're going to have a short video presentation, and then we will continue uh, describing and, and, and de- uh, you know explaining and trying to understand why is Jerusalem so central to Judaism, and why were we so excited when we gained control over it? So here we go. From the dawn of civilization, Armies arrived from the ends of the earth to lock swords over Jerusalem, the city that King David chose some 3,000 years ago as the capital of his ancient Israelite kingdom. Two subsequent Jerusalem temples served the Jewish nation for most of a millennia from atop the Temple Mount. Their former site remains Judaism's holiest location until today. In the course of the 1948 Israeli War of Independence, The Jordanians occupied East Jerusalem, capturing the old city and the Temple Mount, and expelling its Jewish inhabitants. A 1949 armistice agreement left this territory in Jordanian hands. But in violation of its agreements, Jordan denied Jews entry to the city and its holy sites. Jordan systematically desecrated and destroyed 58 synagogues, ancient Jewish religious sites, tens of thousands of graves on the Mount of Olives Cemetery that had served the Jewish nation for two and a half thousand years. For 19 years, the ancient capital lay divided between Jordan and Israel, with seven miles of urban border separating East and West Jerusalem. When war erupted between Egypt and Israel at 714 on the morning of June 5, 1967, Israel lacked the manpower and resources to fight on more than one front simultaneously. It concentrated its forces on the Egyptian front, leaving a single brigade to face Jordan. Israel hoped that Jordan would stay out of the fray. He appealed to King Hussein 
and to other neighbors to stay their hand and deserve to do likewise. But Jordan had already mobilized 11 brigades on Israel's borders. It had invited Iraq's forces to join an attack on Israel, and it had signed a defense pact that placed its army under Egyptian command to better coordinate an Arab-Israeli war. At 9 a.m., at Egypt's urging, King Hussein ordered the indiscriminate shelling of Jewish Jerusalem and other targets. His planes bombed Israeli airfields. Israel bit its lip hoping that Jordan was making a formal gesture of solidarity with Egypt and that the eastern border would soon fall silent. But by 12.30 p.m., Jordan's offensive morphed from a rumble into a roar. Jordanian troops moved into southern Jerusalem's no-man's land and stormed Government House, the UN compound strategic to control of the city's south. Seeing her eastern border catch fire, Israel sent her wings ahead of her claws, first responding to Jordan from the skies. Jordan's airfields and air force were rapidly obliterated. Meanwhile, Israel scrambled to muster an infantry brigade from the north and to divert a paratrooper brigade from the Egyptian front. Israel did not intend to capture the old city, and certainly not the West Bank. Its stated goal was to secure key roads to Jerusalem, strategic ridges and fortified positions that encircled the city, and to create buffer zones for the future safety of Jerusalem and its environs. Israel also planned to liberate the route to the Mount Scopus demilitarized enclave that included the Hadassah Hospital and Hebrew University buildings. Mount Scopus was located in Jordanian-held territory, but in violation of the armistice. Jordan had severely restricted Israeli access for close to 20 years, rendering the area unusable. In the afternoon of June 5th, Israel launched a surprise assault on Government House. It captured the compound within 25 minutes of fierce fighting, then moved swiftly to take the nearby Nakhmeet and Paamon strongholds, so that Israel could take control of the road from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. By 8 p.m., these missions were complete. Meanwhile, an Israeli armored brigade stormed the Tel Al-Ful Ridge that rises some 2,800 feet above sea level. The ridge was key to controlling the Jerusalem-Ramallah route. Fierce battles raged through the night, but by 9.15 a.m. on June 6, Tel Al-Ful fell to Israel. Early in the morning of June 6, Israel fought one of its bloodiest battles at Ammunition Hill a fortification that controlled the road to Mount Scopus. At 3.30 a.m., the battle began. Paratroopers advanced, exposed, without air or artillery cover due to the proximity to residential buildings. Barbed wire, minefields, stone-lined trenches and cement bunkers formed an impermeable nightmare. Every few meters, Jordanian bunkers spewed relentless fire, often requiring hand-to-hand -hand combat to subdue. Eventually, with all their officers dead, individual soldiers led the battle on their own initiative. As the sun rose some three hours later, Ammunition Hill fell as silent as a graveyard. 36 Israeli paratroopers had lost their lives, and today, Ammunition Hill serves as a memorial to their sacrifice. Israel was now free to approach Mount Scopus. At 9.30 a.m. on June 6th, 
Israeli forces approached the enclave and fought a second bitter battle to capture Mivtar Hill. They accomplished their mission, but 34 soldiers fell this time, along with scores of injured. Down south, Israel made its way to Jordanian Jerusalem's Abu Tar neighborhood. They arrived at noon and fought a lengthy battle against five fortified Jordanian positions. By 6 p.m., the IDF had completed their immediate mission. All roads to Jerusalem had been secured, and all enemy strongholds in the immediate area had been captured. The Jordanian forces in the old city were isolated. At 7.45 a.m. on June 7th, the third day of the war, the IDF High Command issued a surprising order. Capture the old city of Jerusalem. Two battalions attacked the high ground, overlooking the city from the Jordanian side of the Mount Scopus demilitarized zone, while a third battalion headed for the old city itself. At 9.45 a.m., Colonel Motagor breached Lion's Gate, and at 10 a.m., his voice crackled through the army radio, shouting ecstatic words that still ring in Israel's memory. The Temple Mount is in our hands. Minutes later, IDF Chief Rabbi Shlomo Goren arrived to recite the poignant Shehechianyu blessing and to sound the shofar as emotional paratroopers wept and smiled at the ancient stones of the newly liberated wall. The iconic images of that moment have become symbols of Jewish survival and of the nation's inextinguishable bond with the sacred city. A second brigade entered the city south through the Ashpot Gate to flush out pockets of resistance. At 11 a.m., the Jordanian governor signed surrender papers and the city elders surrendered at 11.15 a.m. By 1 p.m., the old city was under Israel's control. <clears throat> All right. Well, so what do we have from this? Hold on, we have a chat here. <clears throat> oh, the video audio <clears throat> was barely audible. Were you not able to hear the audio at all? Uh oh. Okay. Yeah, um, it was really, really soft. So. Okay, I um, I apologize. I, I turned my volume up. I was able to hear. Yeah, I, I don't have a volume control on ah, okay. that video. Okay, fine. I apologize. Maybe next time we'll try to figure out something else. We'll get an IT guy to, to help out. Um, alrighty, so essentially what was going on in that video is the story of how the IDF um, took control of the old city of Jerusalem. And essentially, instead of Jerusalem being a divided city like Berlin during the during the Cold War, or like El Paso and Juarez, <laughs> not quite all right um but uh the battle for jerusalem all in all uh 182 soldiers died in that battle and um it was a very you know let's put it this way it was heavy losses based on the amount of space that you're taking over but um you know in the collective memory 
of the Jewish nation, the battle for Jerusalem was a tremendous miracle. It was one of the greatest things that the Israeli army could have done during that time. And what we want to understand today is why is Jerusalem so central and why was it so important for the Israelis <coughs> to, um, to, uh, to take over Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the eternal capital of the Jewish people. Notice I didn't say capital of Israel. Capital of the Jewish people. What does that mean? What's the distinction? The capital of Israel would mean when there is a Jewish government, that Jewish government needs to have a capital city. So instead of that capital city being in Tel Aviv, it's in Jerusalem. But let's say there's no government. There's no state. There's no official uh, you know, Jewish control over the land. So I didn't need a capital city. The answer is that the centrality of Jerusalem to Judaism is to Judaism. It's not to a specific government power in the geographical location that we call today Israel. And that's what we're going to be discussing today. How far back that goes, why that is so important, and how is it possible for a people that doesn't have a land to have a capital? What's that supposed to mean? Right? Isn't the capital the seat of the government? So if you don't have a government, how, how is the capital even relevant? There's once in the bank, they were going through all the different um, passwords that different users have. They noticed that one of the passwords was very, very long. So, um, you know, they did some uh, research and they saw that Charles Levy, who was one of the oldest customers of the bank, he had uh, a password that went like this Adam, Eve, Noah, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Jerusalem. It's a lot of, a lot of letters, huh? And capital, you know, it was, it was capitalized Adam, or capital A, then Eve, capital E. So they call him in, they say, uh, you know, Mr. Levy, we love having you as a customer, but don't you think having such a long password is not very good? He says, I followed all your instructions. What were the instructions? It said that the password needs to be eight characters on one capital. Okay. So we got it. Adam, Eve, Noah, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Jerusalem. We've got a capital city. All right. So, uh, yeah, I also hate passwords, just like you. Um, so what's the deal with Jerusalem? What's the history of Jerusalem? Um, so there are those that will argue and say, look, uh, Jerusalem became a capital, city of Jeru- uh, a capital city of Israel once there was a kingdom, once King David became king, and he was one to set up the capital city in Jerusalem. But that's not really true. The centrality of Jerusalem to Judaism goes all the way back to the very first Jew, Abraham. And even further back, it goes back to the first person. Maimonides writes the following, text number two, in the laws of the Holy Temple. So he says like this, the Holy Temple has a very specific spot. Why is that spot important? Isaac was bound and prepared as a sacrifice on the Temple's future site. As it is said, go to the land of Moriah and offer Isaac there as a sacrifice on a mountain that I will show you. And in Chronicles it is said, Then Solomon began to build the temple of God in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where God had appeared to his father David on the site that David had prepared to build the altar on the the threshing floor of Aravna the Jebusite. We're going to talk about him soon. According to unanimous Jewish tradition, the site upon which David and Solomon built the altar on the threshing floor of Aravna is the location where Abraham built the altar on which he prepared Isaac for sacrifice. Now, that story of Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice and all of that, that's very central to Jewish tradition. That's central to Jewish, um, how would you say, 
legacy. Uh, this is where we come from, and that's where God told Abraham, because you passed this test, therefore your children are going to be my beloved nation, and they're going to be blessed forever. So this is, you know, this was a real uh, watershed moment and a watershed event uh, in Judaism, all the way back to the very first Jews. It goes even further back. Also, according to our tradition, Noah built an altar on this site when he left the ark. Cain and Abel offered their sacrifices on an altar on this site. Adam offered a sacrifice there after he was created. In fact, he was created from soil taken from this location. Our sages said man was created from the place where he would find atonement. So our attachment and uh, you know our, our, our attachment to this site um, it has tremendous historical and religious significance. It goes back to the very beginning of humanity. Adam was created there. Adam offered a, offered a sacrifice there. His children offered sacrifices there. Noah and Abraham, etc. This was all there. Now, the truth of the matter is, you know, we're talking so much about Jerusalem being the capital of Judaism. There's a very important book in which Jerusalem's name is completely not mentioned. And what is that? That's right. In the Torah, in the five books of Moses, you will not find the name Jerusalem at all. Um, however, um, you will find a lot of references to a place, to, you know, to somewhere where God is going to choose it, etc. So, where is Jerusalem? Jerusalem is on the border of two regions. The region or the area of the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. When the Jewish people entered the land of Israel, they didn't just come in and everyone bought some real estate that they wanted. It was apportioned. It was set aside. Even before they came in, Moses already, they, they drew lots and they already apportioned different regions and different areas to different tribes. And Jerusalem was not in anyone's region. It was on the border of Judah and Benjamin. Kind of like El Paso. El Paso is not Mexico and it's not America, right? Because when you're driving down the I-10, you have all, you have the, the, what's it called? It's a black hole of immigration. Anyway, now let, let's not uh, think too highly of ourselves here in El Paso. We're Americans and that's it. Um, but Jerusalem did not belong to any specific tribe. Um, when, when the Jewish people came into the land of Israel through Joshua, text number three, um, they had conquered the land, that separated the land. As for the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out. The Jebusites dwelled in Jerusalem alongside the children of Judah to this day. Why could they not drive them out? Were the Jebusites tremendous warriors? No. The Jebusites were, were not greater warriors than any of the other, other Canaanite nations. So here's what happened. Abraham, many years earlier, had, uh, had interactions with a king called Avimelech. He was the king of the Philistines. And at one point, the, you know, Avimelech offered or he demanded, I don't know exactly how to say it, but he offered to make a covenant, a pact between himself and Abraham that both parties would not hurt each other's grandchildren. That's pretty much the idea. When the Jewish people entered the land of Israel, Avimelech's grandchildren were still alive. They were quite old, but they were still alive. And so when it says the Jewish people could not drive them out, it's not because they couldn't do so militarily, they couldn't do so because they were bound by this oath. Um, eventually, King David became king of Israel, about 300 years later, became king of Israel. Initially, in the first seven years of his reign, his capital city was Hebron. 
That's the city of our forefathers. That's where they are buried. After seven years, it had already been a while since that oath had expired. And King David conquered the city of Jerusalem and moved the capital of the Jewish nation to Jerusalem. Why was it significant specifically in Jerusalem? Because it was a city that didn't belong to anyone. Kind of like Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. doesn't belong to any state. Therefore, it's the capital city of the United States of America. So that's pretty much the idea of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was called the city of unity, the united city. Why? Because that was a city that belonged to all the nation, to all the tribes. Yeah, every, every one of them was involved in this city. Now, what is unique about Jerusalem in Jewish tradition and in Jewish behavior and in Jewish observance in general, um, the uniqueness of anything in Judaism is always defined by halacha, by Jewish law, by Jewish observance, by Jewish behavior. So text four. This comes from the Mechilta, which was one of the, one of the Midrashic works. Um, until Jerusalem was chosen, it was permissible to erect altars anywhere in the land of Israel. Ever since Jerusalem was chosen, it is unacceptable to erect an altar elsewhere. As the verse says, Take heed not to offer your burnt offerings anywhere you please. Offer them only at the place that God will choose. Now, What's so important about this idea of the altar? So here's the deal. Until Jerusalem was chosen to be the capital city of the Jewish nation, of the 12 tribes, of Judaism in general, so when the Jewish people came into Israel, for those 300 some odd years, or like close to 400 years, what was the center of Judaism? The center of Judaism was the Mishkan, the tabernacle. That was the holy uh, edifice that had traveled with the Jewish people throughout the desert. They came into the land of Israel and they set up the Mishkan in a more permanent fashion in different places. They started off in Gilgal, they ended up in Shiloh for quite a few years, about 300 years, and then it went, um, and, and then there was uh, Givon and Nov uh, until finally it came to Jerusalem. Now, during much of this time, uh, even though there was a center for Judaism called the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and that was the center of Torah, etc., However, during this time period, since the Mishkan was not the permanent place, the permanent city um, for God, that was not the permanent central city, so during that time period, anyone was allowed to build an altar in their backyard as long as it was in the land of Israel and offer sacrifices to God. One of the famous, example, famous examples is Samson's parents. Samson, the, 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 the mighty Samson, there's a whole story over there in the prophets in the book of Judges, how his mother had a vision, or not really a vision, she, she actually met an angel, and the angel said, you're going to have a child. And then the husband was there, and the husband offered a sacrifice to God, and the angel went up in the smoke of the sacrifice, went up to heaven with that. Uh, but the point is that everyone was building altars in their backyard. However, once King David set Jerusalem as the capital city, and he set up an altar there, and eventually King Solomon built the temple there, at that point, it's absolutely forbidden for anyone to build an altar anywhere else besides for in that very specific spot of the altar in Jerusalem on Mount Pariah on the Temple Mount. Now, Jerusalem also assumed many other things, um, many other special, uh, let, let's put it this way, there are many observances that are relevant only to Jerusalem, which makes Jerusalem a much more holy place. So if you look at uh, page 97, figure 3.1, we have here a list of seven things that makes Jerusalem different than all the other cities and anywhere else in Israel and the rest of the world. 
Number one, this was the city where on the three festivals of Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot, all of the Jewish people would travel to Jerusalem and a pilgrimage to come and celebrate. This is where they would do the Shalosh Regalim, the pilgrimage to come to Jerusalem. Then there's another thing. Um, every, you know, most Jews, they had, uh, they had land. It was, it, was, it, was a, it was an agricultural economy. And the rule was like this. The law is that when you harvest your land, you must take off certain tithes. So you have to take off 2% to be given to the Kohen. That's called Truma. Then you have to take off 10% to be given to the Levites. It's called Miser, the first tithe. And then there is a second tithe. What is the second tithe? So on some years, that second tithe would be given to the poor. But on most years, that second tithe needed to be brought to Jerusalem, and you had to eat the value of that tithe in Jerusalem. Maeser Sheni, that second tithe, was meant to be eaten by the owner and his family and friends, whatever it is. You had to make a party, you had to make a banquet in Jerusalem, only in Jerusalem. Which meant that every Jew eventually, at a certain point, every one or two, three years, had to come to Jerusalem and make a party, specifically in Jerusalem. Number three, here's an interesting one. There was no Airbnbs in Jerusalem. You were not allowed to rent out your home. You were not allowed to take money for people to stay over in Jerusalem. This was an international city. Jews had an obligation to come. Jews had an obligation to stay overnight in Jerusalem. And therefore, those that owned homes and hotels and hostels and whatever it was were not allowed to charge for someone to stay overnight. So how do you, how do you get any type of value? So the truth is, everyone that came to Jerusalem was coming to bring sacrifices. Now, after you sacrifice an animal and you eat its meat, is there anything left of the animal that's valuable? The skin, exactly. So the, the tradition was that all the skins of the sacrifices would go to the homeowners. So if you came and you had a host, so you'd slaughter and you would do everything that had to be done in the Holy Temple, you brought the, the food back, and the skin always went to the host. And uh, I guess they made a good money off the leather. They were leather traders, whatever it was. Uh, they, were able to, they were able to kind of get the... Another thing, a corpse may not remain there overnight. Until today, this is actually a very, very important law to know about Jerusalem. Anyone that dies in Jerusalem is buried immediately. You could have, you could have uh, funerals going on at 12 o'clock at night, 2 o'clock in the morning. These things that happen very, very quickly because you're not since Jerusalem is a holy city and a corpse... No matter whose corpse it is, um, you know, has a halachic uh, de- designation uh, of ritual impurity. Therefore, that's not allowed to remain in the city overnight. And that brings us to number five. There are no cemeteries or graves in Jerusalem. Mount of Olives is not in Jerusalem proper. Haram uh, and all, all, the, all the cemeteries that are associated with Jerusalem are not really in the environs of the, of the city. Um, there is actually only one grave that's there, and that is the graves of the house of David. King David was buried in Jerusalem and a few of the kings, but that was it. It was like it was a very unique and specific arrangement for that, but otherwise no other graves are allowed in the city. It's not in Jerusalem proper. It's, it's on the outskirts. In general, most of Jerusalem today is not really Jerusalem. Um, most of Jerusalem has the category of close to Jerusalem which has an impact on what we're going to see soon. But number six is very interesting. In Judaism, I mean, this I'll probably, you know, 
Someone wants to get divorced, right? You have to have grounds for divorce. In Judaism, it's the same thing. There has to be grounds for divorce. So the halacha says the following. If uh, there's, a, there's a couple, husband and wife, and one of them wants to move to Jerusalem, and the other one does not want to, that's grounds for divorce. Going to live to Jerusalem is a very important thing, and if any Jew wants to do so, nothing should be able to stop him. Not even his wife or not even his hus- her husband. That's grounds for divorce. And finally, number seven, this is probably one of the most famous ones, is that the holiday of Purim, which everyone celebrates on the 14th day of Adar, in Jerusalem is celebrated on the 15th of Adar. And the reason for that is because when the story of Purim happened, and Mordechai and Esther were establishing the holiday of Purim, so that was during the time, um, during, during the exile between the destruction of the first temple and the rebuilding of the second temple. So Jerusalem was destroyed. All the cities in Israel were, were basically in ruins. And so Mordechai and Esther wanted to make a, like a, wanted to pay tribute to the cities of Israel. So they said like this. In the story, there, there, the, 14th of, the 13th of Adar was the day that Haman was supposed, that the enemies of the Jews were supposed to kill them. And the king said, all right, the Jews should protect themselves. And they did. And they were victorious. However, in Shushan, the capital city of Shushan, Esther asked the king for permission for the Jews to kill their enemies on the next day as well. And so while the entire world was celebrating on the 14th of Adar, in Shushan, on the 14th of Adar, they were still fighting. They were still protecting themselves. They were finding all their enemies. And so they celebrated on the 15th of Adar. And so the holiday of Purim was established. And in the rest of the world, all over the world, they celebrated on the 14th of Adar. But in Shushan, they're going to celebrate on the 15th of Adar. And in order to pay tribute to the, to the land of Israel, those walled cities, those ancient walled cities that were walled cities, when the Jewish people came to the land of Israel, they will celebrate on the 15th of Adar. To this day, the only walled city that we can identify with certainty that it was a walled city when Joshua came into the land of Israel with the Jewish people is Jerusalem. And therefore in Jerusalem, even in the new city of Jerusalem, anything that's close to Jerusalem, anything that's considered Jerusalem, they celebrate Purim not on the 14th of Adar, they celebrate on the 15th of Adar. There's other cities in Israel that it's un- we're not clear First of all, if they were walled cities when Joshua came in, or if the if the current city is an actual location of the ancient city. So, for example, the city of Tzfat, the city of T- Tiberias. Um, in fact, Damascus has one of those questions. Izmir in Turkey is one of those cities. So over there, since it's unsure, so they have a certain arrangement that they do. But Jerusalem is clearly only the 15th. So when I was studying in Israel, this is what we would do. We would party on the 14th, and then we would go to Jerusalem on the 15th, there are some rabbis in the yeshiva that lived in Jerusalem who would party on the 15th as well. It's a good life, right? You got a double Purim. But, uh, so here we see that Jerusalem itself, it's not just that it's the capital city and that's where the government is, etc. In Jewish observance, Jerusalem is different than the rest of the world, than the rest of the land of Israel. Um, so now here's the question. Why did the Torah not clearly identify this city, the capital of Judaism, as Jerusalem. What's the Torah hiding? So Maimonides says something very interesting. He gives three reasons in the book, The Guide to the Perplexed, called Meir Nebuchadnezzar, Guide to the Perplexed, text number six. For three reasons, for three reasons, the name of the place is not distinctly stated in the Torah, but alluded to in the phrase, the place that God will choose. First, if the nations had learned that, in the view of the Torah, 
if this place was the center of the universe, they would have occupied it and ferociously battled to retain it. But because the Torah was very uh, oblique, does that make sense? Circumspect. <laughs> what? Circumspect. Circumspect. There we go. It was, it was very you know, discreet <laughs> about the place. So the nations of the world didn't really pay attention to some backwater Jebusite town you know, called Jerusalem. They didn't really care about it. They didn't realize that for the Jews, this is really the center of the world. Um, second, those who were then in possession of the city might have, in spite, destroyed and ruined it to the best of their capability before the Jews took hold of it. Right? That could happen. Third, and most importantly, every one of the 12 tribes would have desired to have their, this place in its borders and under its control. This would have led to rivalry and discord, <laughs> such as was caused by Korach's desire for the priesthood. Therefore, it was commanded that the temple should not be built before the appointment of a king who would make all the decisions and thus minimize the discord. Very fascinating here. If when the Jewish people came into the land, everyone know that's the prize. Jerusalem, that, I mean, that's where the economy is going to be. Jerusalem, that was the center of the economy. Everyone was coming. And three times a year, everyone was definitely going to be there. So who doesn't want to have it in their borders, right? How did El Paso become part of Texas? You know? Well, it, 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 we definitely pay taxes to Texas because it was the main um, the main stop on the what's it called you know the Santa Fe Road whatever that, Santa that road Fe Santa Fe Trail and so when Texas won the war against the Mexicans they carved out that area and said we want to get all the taxes from what's going on in El Paso so it makes sense all the tribes are going to be rushing towards the center of the world so therefore God said no 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 one's going to know where the center is going to be. Come into the land, everyone get your region, everyone calm down. In about 350 years, you're going to have a king who's going to be in control. He will reveal to the world where the center of the world is now at. And so that's why the Torah was very, uh, you know, quiet about where exactly it is. Uh, but text number seven, it gives us a whole different perspective here. Um, Rabbi Chaim ben Betzalel, in the Sefer Chaim, he says like this, The Torah does not mention the name of the city of Jerusalem, Rather, the city is referred to ambiguously as the place that God will choose because we serve God and pray to Him in all places and everywhere we do so, it is the place that God will choose. Essentially, what he's saying is Jerusalem is not just a place. It's also a concept. It's an idea. It's a state of being. Jerusalem is that bridge between heaven and earth. Later we'll see how it's actually, um, how it's like the, how you say, the ladder, the ladder to heaven. It's called Shar HaShamayim, it's the gate to heaven. Well, to have that gate to heaven, it's not just about a physical location, it's also about a state of mind, a state of being. And the Torah does not want to limit the state of being that Jerusalem has, or the, 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 the ability to be in the Jerusalem style, in the Jerusalem state of being, to specifically that one place. We're going to skip number eight, but uh, let's let's continue here to text number nine. So let's talk about, so we know that the city of Jerusalem is the holy city. The city of Jerusalem is the center of the world. Uh, the city of Jerusalem has unique laws associated with it. Um, the city of Jerusalem is referred to in the Torah as the place that God himself will choose but what is so unique about the Temple Mount? We have a city, and now we have a very specific area called 
the Temple Mount. How do we get control of it? The city of Jerusalem was conquered by King David. But when he conquered the city of Jerusalem, he did not conquer the Temple Mount. Through most of King David's reign, the Temple Mount was owned by Aravno, who was the chieftain of the Jebusites. When, when King David took over the city of Jerusalem, he did not banish the Jebusites. He just took control of the area. So the, the chieftain of the Jebusites, he remained in a certain area, and he owned that land, and that land was not under Jewish control. Towards the end of King David's reign, King David reigned for about 40 years. So we're talking here about 33 years after King David already set up the capital city of Judaism in Jerusalem. The capital of his kingdom was in Jerusalem. So at that point, King David wanted to take a census of the people. He made a mistake in how he did the census, and as a result, it was a terrible plague. People were dying. Um, and it was very frightening for the king, and he was trying to figure out what was the problem, what was the mistake. God sent a, um, a, a prophet named God. God, right? It's the same name as one of the 12 tribes. And he said the following. Text number 9, it's from Samuel 2. The prophet God came that day to David and said to him, Go and build an altar to God on the threshing floor of Aravna the Jebusite. And the implication was when you're going to set up an altar there and you're going to offer sacrifices, then, uh, then the, the plague will stop. David went as God had commanded through God. You see the distinction? Okay. Uh, Aravna looked out and he saw the king and his servants approaching. Aravna went out, prostrated himself before the king and said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David responded, I have come to purchase the threshing floor from you to build an altar to God so that the plague will cease from the people. Aravna said to David, Let my lord the king take the threshing floor and use it as an altar and offer to God that which is pleasing in his eyes. See, you can take the oxen for burnt offerings and the threshing tools and the wooden tools of the oxen for wood. All this Aravna, the chieftain of the Jebusites, wished to give to King David. He wanted to give it to him as a gift. Aravna said to the king, May your God accept your sacrifice. No, David said to Aravna, I insist on paying for it. I will not offer to my God offerings for which I did not pay. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 silver shekels. Uh, in fact, in Chronicles, it says a different, it says 600 shekels. So was it 50 or was it 600? So, here, so the answer is, he took 50 shekels from every tribe. So 50 times 12 is 600. There we go. Which is significant here. We'll see soon why it's specifically uh, significant. Um, God, he built there an altar and offered various offerings to God. God accepted the offerings and the plague upon Israel <clears throat> came to an end. Okay, so now, why didn't King David just conquer it? What's wrong with that? Why didn't he accept the gift? Why did he specifically purchase it? And why did he purchase it with money? That didn't come from his own coffers. He purchased it with money that he had collected from all the Jewish people. A representation. What? So it will belong to them. Oh, very good. So let's see text number 10. Pretty obvious, right? So text number 10 from the Minchas Chinuch, a very important uh, commentator on Jewish law. Um, so he says like this, The scripture relates that King David purchased the site of the temple from Aravna the Jebusite. It is clear that this location was not taken earlier from Aravna, possibly because he had accepted the peace overture of King David. 
there is a deeper reason why the site was not previously taken from Aravna. It appears that it was God's will that the holy site where the divine presence was destined to reside for all eternity should not be taken by force, even permissible force. It's going to be a place of peace. Don't take it through war. Don't take it through force. That's number one. Moreover, King David did not want to accept the site as a gift. Rather, he insisted on paying full market value. And he wanted that all of Israel should thereby have a portion in the holiest of all sites. The holy temple, the Temple Mount, was destined to be a symbol of peace. That's why they didn't take it through war. And also was destined to be a symbol of unity. And therefore, everyone's got to be involved. King David could buy it, no problem. But that wasn't the point. The point was not that King David should own it. The point was that all the people should own it together. Which brings us to a very fascinating thing about the Six-Day War, and specifically about Israeli geopolitics today. We talk about, you know, the occupied territories and stuff like that. Let's see text 11. This is from the Medrash. There are three locations regarding which the nations of the world cannot harass Israel with the claim that it was stolen. First, the cave of Machpelah, the holy temple, and the resting place of Joseph in Shechem. Why these three places? Didn't we learn in the first lesson that the entire land was given to us and it was a covenant and a gift to us and it never expired? Said, so you're right, that's all good. That's all good. That's no problem. But there are three places that even those that don't want to accept that God gave us a gift, there are three locations they can't make a fuss about. They were purchased. Oh, exactly, they were purchased. We have the deed for them. The cave of Machpelah, for it is written, Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms and weighed out for him the price of that Ephron had asked, 400 silver shekels. Sarah had died. Avram needs to you know, make a Jewish cemetery. He wants a place to bury her. And he purchases the cave of Machpelah from Ephron, the Chittite. The holy temple, as we just read, for it is written, David paid Aravna for the site. And finally, Joseph's burial place, for it is written, Jacob purchased the plot of land from the sons of the ruler of Shechem. When did the Israelis, the Israeli government, the state of Israel, when did they take control over these three sites? During the Six-Day War. From 1940 until 1967, Jews did not have access, not to the Temple Mount, even the Western Wall. We'll talk about that soon, what the Western Wall is. They did not have access to the cave of Machpelah, and they certainly did not have access to the grave of Joseph, who was in Shechem, which the Arabs call Nablus. 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 So that, that's, the, that's, that's the word you're going to see in the, in the media. There's still a problem with the cave of Machpelah. There's still, in Hebron, is still a big problem. It's still a problem. At least we have access. Today we have access to an extent. But during the Six-Day War, uh, I mean, the, the video was only, the, the, the film only spoke about Jerusalem, but by accident, the IDF took control of the whole West Bank, <laughs> including Hebron and, and Nablus, etc. Um, so during the Six-Day War, we conquered or we recaptured or we took back these three sites that in fact are ours with guilt, right? With real cash, hard cash we paid, with the silver shekels. Okay, ironically, today these three cities are huge flashpoints, major flashpoints yes. um, in uh, you know Israeli-Arab relations, and the whole world goes crazy about all this stuff. Alrighty, so let's now talk about, uh, so we learned about Jerusalem as a city, its centrality to Judaism. It's a place that God chose. It's a holy city. There are specific observances that apply only there. Um, we have uh, the importance of the Temple Mount 
its connection to Judaism by dint of the fact that it was purchased by King David. Um, now let's talk about the Holy Temple itself. The Temple Mount is a huge area. Now there's the Holy Temple itself. Now let's talk about the Kotel, or the Koisel, the Western Wall. What is that wall? So it, it's not a wall that belonged to the actual Holy Temple. All of that was destroyed. Everything from the Holy Temple was destroyed. Um, during the Second Temple era, there was there was a king. His name was King Herod. Herod, those are Herodian stones. Right. So King Herod, he uh, he refurbished the temple, made it very very beautiful. Uh, in fact, the sages gave him a lot of credit for doing that. And he also built a huge wall around the Temple Mount. The Western Wall is a small little part of this wall. We'll talk soon. So, so let's talk about the Western Wall, for example, for now. Um, what we call the Western Wall today, the Kotel, you know, when we go to visit Israel, we go to pray at the Kotel, the width of that area is 187 feet. That's it. 187 feet from a wall that's really 1,600 feet wide. That's how long it is. So where is it? It's part of many houses. <laughs> There's a lot of Arab homes that are built onto the wall. There's actually, in the Arab quarter, there's an area that has some of the wall exposed. It's called the Kotel Katan, the small Kotel. So before 1948, when Jews, you know, Jews living in Jerusalem and the old city of Jerusalem is going everywhere in Jerusalem. The Arab quarter is everywhere. It wasn't even a question. So there was another area of the Kotel that was, that was accessible to Jews, but they were able to pray there as well. Um, so the 187 feet that you see, that's, that's all you see, but it's really part of a 1,600-foot-wide wall. Um, so that's the western wall of the Temple Mount. Now let's talk about the height. Um, the only thing that you see exposed is 62 feet high. 62 feet. How many, how many stories is that? Five? Six? About six. Yeah? Six stories high. That's all that's exposed. Under the ground is... Um, the entire thing from the foundation until the top is 105 feet. It's a pretty tall wall. It's not bad. Now, from the exposed area of the wall, there are three sections. There's the bottom seven rows. Those are the only seven rows that are from the Herodian time period. Above that, there's a whole section of stones that were built in, uh, what was it? Uh, it was later on. When was it? Can't tell. There, there was there's a second section, and then there's the highest section, which was built like in the early 1900s. So it's fairly new. Um, so the 62 feet that we see, that's not all the Herodian wall that he built uh, during the, the Temple era. However, despite the fact that it's so small, at least the part that uh, that we know comes from the Temple era. The Western Wall has been the only physical location that we have, the only remnant from the Holy Temple era, um, and it's connected to the Temple Mount. Um, and there is this idea that uh, the, the Divine Presence, the Shekhinah, never left the, whole, the, the, the Western Wall. Um, let's see, text number 12 from the Medrash. Behold, he stands beyond our wall, this refers to the western wall of the Holy Temple, which God swore would never be destroyed. And that's why it's still there. 
there's a lot of different stories about you know the fact that the, the Romans tried to hide it, they tried you know, they tried to cover it in garbage, and the Jews had to find it. All I'm not going to get into all the stories about the Kotel, but for centuries, actually from two millennia, this was the you know the holy site for the Jewish people. It's become a tradition uh, when you go to the to the wall to write a note in a paper and to put it inside. So you know the famous joke that uh, the rabbi meets up with Mr. and Mrs. Goldstein a few years after their marriage, and they didn't have any children. So he said, you know, I'm going to Israel, I'll be by the wall, give me a note, I'll put it in. All right, they give a note, ask for a blessing, put it in. About six years later, he meets Mrs. Goldstein, says, how are things? She said, great. Says, no, any kids? Ten children. Ten children in six years? What happened? Three sets of twins and four singles. Wow, so it worked. Where's Mr. Goldstein? Says he went to Israel. Why? To find that note and take it out of the wall. <laughs> anyway, we, sh- we should all be blessed. The Don't quit your day job. <laughs> Don't quit your day job, right? So, what is. Well, you're going to have to record the jokes. That's going to be part of the homework. You have to remember the jokes. So, um, so what, is, what is the specialty? of the Temple Mount, of the Holy Temple. Why is that the place where the Divine Presence always is? So this is actually, uh, in Jewish tradition, this is the center of the world specifically for prayer. Not limited to, but very importantly for the idea of prayer. Where is the first time that we see such a thing? The story of Jacob running away from his brother Esau who wanted to kill him, and he falls asleep in a certain spot. Uh, Jacob awoke, so we're on text 13, Jacob awoke in great... So he went to sleep and he had a dream. What does he see in the dream? He sees a ladder going from earth all the way to heaven and angels are going up and down and God is standing above him. God tells him a special message and Jacob awoke in great fright and said, God's house is in this place as it is written. (coughs) Jacob was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. From here we learn that all who pray in this place, in Jerusalem, it is as if they pray before God's throne. The entryway to heaven is there, and the door is open for prayers to be heard. As it says, this is the gate of heaven. Now the symbolism of the latter in Jacob's dream is very significant and very relevant to the idea of prayer. In fact, prayer... Is, is described as a ladder. Like Jacob's ladder. You start off on the ground, you start off rooted in reality, and the whole idea of prayer is to be elevated to a more spiritual reality. Let's see, text 14. The highest level on the ladder of prayer is reached when we are so inspired as to want nothing but the feeling of attachment with God. When we're talking about the highest rung, we're talking about the Amida prayer. Right when we rise, and where do we face when we're saying the Amida prayer? We face east. We face Jerusalem, the Holy Temple. If you're in Jerusalem, you don't face east. You face the Temple, right? So if you're in Israel, you face Jerusalem. Um, why? Because that's the gateway to heaven. That's where our prayers all go to heaven. On this level, tefillah is related to the verb tofel, to attach or join or bind together, as two pieces of a broken vessel are pieced together to make it whole again. Our soul is truly a part of godliness. And it therefore longs to be reunited with and reabsorbed in godliness, just as a small flame, when it is put closer to a larger flame, is absorbed into the larger flame. Okay, let's just go to the end. Our soul, too, 
strives upwards like the flame of the candle. Okay. So now we see how Jerusalem, I'm sorry, how the how the holy temple is much more than just a physical location. It's a physical location that represents a state of being. It represents something that we could actually access wherever we are. The idea of prayer, the idea of attaching ourselves to God, the idea of being elevated to the highest levels of this ladder. We face Jerusalem, but the main thing is that we have to be in that state of mind. We're focused on the idea of prayer. <clears throat> now, in the Holy Temple itself, there were different levels of holiness in the Holy Temple. Um, text 15. Before the Holy Temple was chosen, all of Jerusalem was suitable to host the Divine Presence. Once the Holy Temple was chosen, the rest of Jerusalem became ineligible to host the Divine Presence. As it is said, for God has chosen Zion, this is my resting place for all eternity. Previously, we learned about altars. That before Jerusalem was chosen, the altar could be anywhere in Israel. Now that it was chosen, the altar can only be in Jerusalem. Now we're talking about something else. We're talking about the Divine Presence. Where does God reside? Where is His residence? Now, what in the Holy Temple represented God's residence? We have the altar for service, for sacrifice. What represented God's presence? The Holy of Holies, which had in it the Ark. What was in the Ark? The Ten Commandments. What's the Ten Commandments? What is the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments embodies the Torah. The Ten Commandments has 620 letters. Don't start counting, trust me. 620 letters in the Ten Commandments. There are 613 biblical mitzvot, and seven mitzvot that were added, not as an addition to the 613, but like a mitzvah like reading the Megillah Purim, a mitzvah of lighting Shabbos candles. These are seven mitzvahs that were established by the sages uh, during a certain time period. So we have a total of 620. Every letter in the Ten Commandments represents another mitzvah. So essentially, the Ten Commandments, the two tablets that have the Ten Commandments engraved in them, are they embody what Torah is, and where is God present in the Torah? What's the holiest object we have in Judaism? The Torah scroll, right? Why? Because of the words that's in it, or because God rests through the Torah, in the Torah. So the apex the most intense representation of Torah or embodiment of Torah is in the two tablets, which was in the Holy of Holies. Um, text 16. This comes from the Tanya, um, from the founder of Chabad. In the first temple, the Ark and the tablets were housed in the Holy of Holies chamber. Generally, there's a whole conversation, a whole discussion. Where is the Ark today, right? We learned about this a few weeks ago. Where is the Ark today? You know, was it captured? Was it not captured? Etc. Maimonides writes that when King Solomon built the temple, he built it with um, the, this um, hiding spot, like like a like a like a how would you call it? A bunker. He built a bunker in the in the Temple Mount. In order to get to that bunker, there's like all these different you know pathways and stuff. Basically, you can't find it. And he built it as a place where they could keep the ark when the temple is destroyed. And during the first temple era, there was a time that one of the kings decided that, you know, it's going to be bad soon. 
So therefore he instructed the Kohanim to take the Holy Ark from the Holy of Holies and put it in the bunker. Keep it there. It was actually during a time of peace, but he, had, he was able to foresee that there was trouble on the horizon. And that's what he did. And ever since then, we have never found the Ark. The second temple, the Ark wasn't there. They had a Holy of Holies and everything, but the Ark wasn't there. And it's explained that Maimonides is basically telling us that King Solomon had built like these, these two holy temples. I mean, these two Holy of Holies. There was the revealed Holy of Holies that was there in the structure. But then there was the bunker Holy of Holies. And that the Holy Ark has two spots where it could be. It could be in the Holy of Holies that you're able to see that the Kohen Gadol would enter on Yom Kippur on the holiest day of the year to do a certain service there. Or it could be in the bunker, hidden from everyone else, but it's still doing its job. It's still playing host to the Shekhinah, to the Divine Presence. So anyone that asks me, hey, where's the Holy Ark today? It's somewhere there. They're just not going to find it. It's just not going to happen. It's actually a whole story that the chief rabbi of the Kotel tried to access it. They had found a certain tunnel somewhere. In fact, he asked many rabbis throughout the world if he should do it. The rabbi wrote to him very, very sharply not to, not to even try it. Don't even go there. And at one point when they were about to do it, the Arabs came and they rioted and they basically put all the cement and rocks and everything and they closed it up. And that was that. Aren't they still doing some archaeological digs underneath the temple? Of course they are. Yeah, yeah. They're doing archaeological digs, but they're not going to get the, the ark. But uh, are some people dreaming that that's what they might find? They could dream. <laughs> they're not going to find it. <laughs> you could dream all you want. You know, you, just because he dreams so doesn't make it so, right? We'll have the Holy Ark back again when Mashiach will come. You know, everything is going to be in its right place. Um, but what's the idea here? The idea here is that, once again, the Holy Temple is not just about the physical location. It also is a concept. It's not just the, how do you say, the center of the world for the concept of prayer. It also represents the embodiment of Torah. So what happens when you don't have a Holy Temple? Where is the Divine Presence there? Then... Let's go to text 17. Since the day the temple was destroyed, God has no place in this world aside from the four cubits of the study of halacha. When you study Torah, you're making a holy of holies right here, right now. Since we're studying Torah, that's what we're doing. Again, the center of Judaism is being explained as not just a location. It's most importantly a concept. A concept that we can access no matter where we are, no matter when. This explains why Jerusalem has continued to be central to Judaism, even though it was destroyed, even though for about three, 400 years the Romans had banished the Jews from living in Jerusalem. Um, it didn't matter. Jerusalem was still our capital city because Jerusalem is the embodiment. The Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, the Holy Temple, even though it's in ruins, is the embodiment of everything that is so central to us as Jews, the concept of prayer and the concept of Torah study. Now, many people ask me with regard to the Temple Mount, you know, should Jews be going there? Should they not be going there? So I just want to clarify something. The Temple Mount is a holy place. And that holiness comes with certain restrictions. When the Holy Temple stood in Jerusalem, in order to be able to enter the Temple, you had to be ritually pure. What does ritual purity mean? How does one become ritually impure? doesn't take much. You touch a grave, you're ritually impure. You're doing a mitzvah, burying the dead. Tomei, you're ritually impure. And there are other ways a person can become ritually impure, right? So how does someone become ritually purified? You have to go to a mikvah. 
if they had come in contact with a corpse, they have to be sprinkled with water that was mixed with the ashes the of the red heifer. It's a whole, it's a whole to do. They have to be sprinkled with that, and they have to go to the mikveh, etc. For two thousand years, we haven't had access to the ashes of the red heifer, and so all of us are. Guess what? We are all tummy. We're all ritually impure. It's not. It's nothing wrong. In other words. They didn't do anything wrong. We just don't have access to it. And that's that. Everyone that has lived in the past 2,000 years is ritually impure. And according to Jewish law, if you're ritually impure, you stay away from that Temple Mount. You don't belong there. Therefore, Jews are not allowed to walk there. Not just because the Arabs don't let them. Not just because the whole world is going to go crazy when Jews go on the Temple Mount. The chief rabbinate, the, 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 the Israeli rabbinate, they say it's prohibited for a Jew to go there. We're not allowed to. <clears throat> were they allowed to go there during the war in order to that's a separate question separate question about war but today we don't belong there at all does that mean that we're forsaking our, our, our relationship to it of course not the reason why we don't go there is because it's so important to us because it's so real to us anyway so be it as it may with relation to the idea of our class now we can understand why for the Jews in Israel capturing or recapturing or reconquering uh, Jerusalem, making it a united city instead of a divided city was so important. Why these specific spots were so important and that's why it was so emotional and so amazing and that's why I wasn't alive then. But I'm told that when this happened, when they recaptured the, the Western Wall, when Jews finally had access to the Western Wall, it didn't just excite the Jews in Israel. Throughout the world, Jews were electrified by this. Uh, they were very, very inspired by the idea of the fact that now we are able to access the Western Wall, which is the only remnant that we have from the Holy Temple, and may God Almighty help us that very soon we should witness the rebuilding of the Third Holy Temple through Mashiach, and we're not just going to have the Western Wall, we'll have all the walls, and we'll have the actual Temple, and we'll be purified, and we'll be able to go in there, and we'll be able to witness all of the wonderful things that happen in the Holy Temple. Most importantly, the whole function of the Holy Temple is to bring peace to the entire world. Jerusalem is a city of peace. The Temple is a symbol of peace. And not just to keep the peace there inside its four walls, but in order to spread that peace to the entire world. Alrighty. Cool. Any Thank questions? You. Thank you. Thank you. Questions, comments, refutations? So that phrase of Yerushalayim comes from Tehillim, from Psalms. It comes from Psalms chapter 137. Check it out. I think. Or 138. 137, I think. What's this? Jerusalem, Mount of Olives. Painting from Freyr. Right. right. Okay. Pilgrims worship me outside of Jerusalem. Oil Thursday morning. I have to take a picture of that. You took a picture of this? Thursday morning. Wow. All righty. <laughs> God works in, in funny ways. Wait to see the Van Gogh exhibit. We had two hours to wait to get in, and we wouldn't see all the rest of the net. 